0: Of all the events that have affected the course of history, wars, famines, technological breakthroughs, etc., none compares to the coming of Jesus Christ. By His life, death, and resurrection, Christ, the Son of God, fulfills God's plan of redemption and reveals to us the purpose for which we were created. Welcome to the Radical with David Platt podcast. The latest sermons from teacher, author, and pastor, David Platt, delivered weekly. And as always, you can find thousands of more gospel-centered resources over at our website, Radical.net. Throughout history, billions of people have come and billions have gone. Empires have come and empires have gone. Countries, nations, kings, queens, presidents, dictators, and rulers have all come and gone. And at the center of it all stands one person. Jesus Christ, who redefines history. In this message from Matthews chapter 1 and 2, David Platt helps us see how Jesus changes everything. Here's Pastor David with a sermon titled, Jesus Changes Everything, from Matthew chapter 1 and 2.
1: I mentioned uh, in the sermon last week from Ethiopia that our plan over the coming weeks was to look at uh marriage and money, like two very important facets of our lives, and we're gonna do that, Lord willing, over the next two weeks. But before we get there, we need to see the most important focus in our lives. And this is an appropriate text in many ways in light of what I just shared. Like more than anything today, I just want us to see Jesus. I have a very simple aim for the next few minutes we have together. My aim is to show you Jesus in God's word in the next few minutes in such a way that by the time we're finished, a few minutes from now, you will love Jesus more than you love him right now. That's, That's my aim, my prayer. That God by his spirit, through his word, would lead you right where you are sitting, no matter what's going on in your life, to a greater love for Jesus than you have right now. So for some of you, you're exploring Christianity, and I am praying that today, for the first time, you will feel affection for Jesus, that a strange affection will rise in your heart. Even if you're not exploring Christianity, maybe you're opposed to Christianity and you're here for any number of reasons, that something, I pray that something supernatural might happen in your heart today. And you might experience an unexpected desire for Jesus. And I pray that you would not resist that. And then even for some of you who've been followers of Jesus for 60 or 70 years, I pray that a few minutes from now, you would feel fresh love for Jesus. So, and in loving him more, that you would experience deeper trust in him and desire to follow him and share him with others. So, in our Bible reading this week, Luke 1 and 2, Mark 1, John 1, Matthew 1 and 2, it's been like Christmas in the summer. So finally, after reading through the Old Testament for six months, finally, Jesus is here and Jesus changes everything. So if you haven't already, pull out those notes you received when you came in, and I wanna show you eight ways Jesus changes everything, starting in Matthew chapter one, verse one. So read along with me there. This is how the New Testament of the Bible opens, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. All right, let's stop there. Number one way, Jesus changes everything. Jesus redefines history. He redefines history so, This first book in the New Testament starts with a genealogy, a list of names. You know, the kind of thing that, let's be honest, you skip over in your Bible reading, right? Like, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but who skims when they get to this, like, let me get to something good. Like, but this is not a a list of names you want to just skip over. Because Matthew, a disciple of Jesus, from the start of this book is showing how all of history has been pointing to Jesus, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Christ. So just in case you're wondering, Christ is not his last name. Christ means Messiah or anointed or promised one. So ever since the entrance of sin into the world, the beginning of the Bible, God promised a coming anointed one, a Messiah who would defeat sin and deliver people from sin. So remember Genesis chapter three, verse 15? We're not gonna have time to turn to all these places. You might just write down these references in your notes. I'll put them on the screen. Right after sin entered the world, God said to the serpent, the tempter, Genesis three fifteen, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. A picture of the, the battle with sin in all of our hearts. Then it talks about one offspring from the woman. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So the tempter would bruise the heel of this one who would come, but this one who would come from the offspring of woman would bruise the tempter's head. Some translations say he will crush your head. And out of the gate, Matthew is shouting in verse number one, the snake crusher has come. Jesus is the offspring from woman who has come to conquer sin and Satan. And the rest of this chapter will tell us the miraculous story of how Jesus would be born uniquely from the offspring of woman, but not of man. Not from Adam, the first man who succumbed to sin, from whom we have all inherited our sinful nature. This man, Jesus, would be unlike us. He would not succumb to sin, he would save from sin. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So go back to the verse, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. So pause there. Jesus is the offspring from David who has come to reign as king forever. Remember this way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we read this. When David wanted to build a temple for God, God told him no, that David's son Solomon would do that. And in that passage, God promised David that his offspring would continue and one from David's line would reign as king forever. Listen to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 to 13. I'll put it on the screen. God said to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, obviously that promise was initially a reference just to Solomon, but notice it's about more than Solomon because the throne of his kingdom will be established how long? forever. Second Samuel 7, 16 says the same thing. David, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And what we read in the rest of the Old Testament is that promise being repeated over and over and over again. Oh, I wish we had time to turn to all these places, but again, you might just write them down. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7 talks about the Prince of Peace who would come and sit on the throne of David. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse five and six, tells about a king from the line of David who would bring perfect justice and righteousness in the earth. Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 24 and 25, tells about a Davidic king who would reign over a new covenant for all nations. So we could go on and on and on. The point is, all throughout the Old Testament, God's people were continually looking for a different king, unlike other kings, to come in the line of David. And what Matthew is saying here, is that the king has come. In fact, let me show to you here in Matthew chapter one, look down at verse 17. So you read this list of names, it's actually not a comprehensive genealogy. So not every descendant in the family tree is included here. Some entire generations are skipped. So think about your family tree, like you get to pick and choose which ones stay and which ones don't, okay? So it's kinda, okay, so why did Matthew do this? And specifically, look at verse 17. All the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. From the deportation of Babylon to to the Christ, 14 generations. So there's these groups of 14. Why? Well, it all goes back to the Hebrew name for King David. So a little bit of Hebrew information, hang with me. It'll be worth it. In the Hebrew, they had something called gematria which is basically a way that they would assign a numerical value to certain words or names based on the letters of the Hebrew alphabet that made up that word or name. So for example, you would have a number associated with your name based on the number or based on the Hebrew letters that were in your name. And according to that system of gematria, you'll never guess what the number associated with the name of King David was. Just guess. Boom, drop the mic, Matthew. Bro puts an exclamation point on the fact that Jesus is from King David. So that's second. And then third, so back up in verse one, he's the son of David, the son of Abraham. So one more glance back at the Old Testament, remember what we read in Genesis 12, when God said to Abraham, Genesis 12, go from your country and your kindred, your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, make your name great, so you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And you read on Genesis 17, God tells Abraham that he would bring blessing to all the nations and kings would come from his line. And Genesis ends, Genesis Genesis 49 with a promise that from the line of Judah will come a king to whom shall be the obedience of all the nations, all the peoples. So when you get to Matthew chapter one, verse one, it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of who? Judah. So see it, Jesus is the offspring from Abraham who has come to bless all the nations. You say, what's the point of all the Old Testament history, David? Don't miss it. Like. The Bible is making clear to you and me right now in this passage that nothing in history is accidental. Nothing. Amen. Everything in the Old Testament, all throughout this history from the very beginning has been pointing to a king Who would come? And from the first verse in the New Testament, the Bible's announcing the King has come. Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham, is here. He is the center of history. And this is really important for us to hear because you are not at the center of history. I am not at the center of history. Our generation is not at the center of history. The United States of America is not at the center of history. Throughout history, billions of people have come and billions of people have gone. Empires have come and empires have gone. Countries, nations, kings, queens, presidents, dictators, rulers have come and gone. And at the center of it all stands one person, Jesus Christ. He (laughs) redefines history. (laughs) That's only one point. Got to pick up the pace. Two, Jesus reunites humanity, redefines history, and Jesus reunites humanity. So then we have this list of different people, different generations from different backgrounds. You have men and women, Jews and Gentiles, from upper-class kings to a lower-class prostitute. But they all have one thing in common. They all point To Jesus so hold your place here in Matthew chapter 1 look ahead to Matthew chapter 2 let's do a little Christmas in August verse 1 after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king behold wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying where is he who is born king of the Jews for we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him when Herod the king heard this he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy and going to the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod they departed to their own country by another way. You know, it's actually pretty appropriate that we would read this months after Christmas because we talked about this before. Like, The wise men did not get to the stable, the manger, same time the shepherds did. So all those notivity scenes that we set up at Christmas are actually biblically wrong. So they didn't come till months later. So this actually, the word is prompting us. Like go, go into the attic, pull out the decorations and put wise men up on the mantle in your home and when people come over and visit they're like why do you have wise men out you're like because we are biblically accurate in our home (laughs) and we are celebrating the wise men in the summer so it's a pretty fascinating story think about it these wise men from the east now there's mystery around who these guys were by the way it never says there were just three of them and they weren't just some weird stargazers and these were well-respected men with prominent religious and political influence. Their name literally means great or powerful ones. Had a high position, evident in the wealth they bring with them the caravan they likely had alongside them. We learn about guys like this in the book of Daniel. It's likely they had been influenced by Jewish teachings from the Old Testament when the people of Israel had been scattered across the east during the exile and now through their study of the stars they're drawn from the east to worship the king of the Jews. Now, there's Old Testament background here too. I really wish we had time to look at all these stories because nothing here is accidental. Back in the book of Numbers, Balak, the king of Moab, had called for Balaam, a magician or a seer from the east to come and curse Israel for him. Balaam though, if you remember the story, refused to do that and said he actually blessed Israel. And in his last words, this is what Balaam said, Numbers 24, Verse 17, well, we'll start in verse 15, just get the set up. He took up his discourse and said, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eyes opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God, knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down with his eyes uncovered. And here's what he says. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall arise out of Israel. So Balaam said, from the people of Israel, a star will come and a scepter, a king will rise. A star will announce a king who, as you continue reading in Numbers 24, who will save the people of God. So think about this, in Numbers, a well-respected magician seer from the east tells about a star and a king to rise among the Jews. And now in Matthew, powerful, influential magicians, magi from the east, follow a star to see one born king of the Jews. Everything here is purposeful. God is orchestrating history and arranging the planets, the stars in the sky to shout to the world that the king has come. Jesus is the king to whom all of nature points. And he's not just king of the Jews these were non-Jewish men from the East. And what do they do when they get to Jesus? In a breathtaking scene, just imagine these prominent men from the East, from the nations, they bow down and worship a baby because Jesus is the King before whom all nations bow. Jesus has come as king, not just for one type of people, but for all peoples, for all the nations. I'm telling you, I don't make up this global mission stuff. It's all over the Bible. You can't escape it unless you're trying to ignore it. Jesus is the king of the nations, and we know this, right? Like we're a church full of a hundred plus nations, and we've gathered together in this room and other campuses all across Washington D.C. Not because our politics are the same, not because our ethnicities are the same, not because our backgrounds are the same because we come from all kinds of different ethnicities, backgrounds with all kinds of different politics. We have one king and his name is Jesus. He reunites (laughs) humanity. (laughs) A human race that is marked by sin. So, okay, what does all this history mean for our lives? Like, so what, right? Well, that brings us back to Matthew one and the third way Jesus changes everything. To all who are caught in sin, Jesus gives a fresh start. I pray that these words will land on some hearts in a fresh way right now. To those who are caught in sin, Jesus gives a fresh start. So you gotta see this. These first seventeen verses, you got a list of names of sinner after sinner after sinner, story after story after story of sin. And you just think about it, you have Judah and Tamar in verse three who had twins by incest. Verse six, you have the story of David's adultery with the wife of Uriah whom David then murdered. Then, You have evil king after evil king who led people into idolatry and immorality, eventually resulting in the destruction of Jerusalem, deportation to Babylon, then back from Babylon. Story after story of people who rebelled against God. Like this is, it's pretty startling startling to think about. Like the great, 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 great grandparents of Jesus hated God. And were leading others to hate God, but then, So don't miss this. Look at verse 18. Right after this whole list, Matthew writes, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. And I want to encourage you to circle that word birth or make a note because you know what that word is in the Greek, original language of the New Testament. So a little Hebrew that helps us understand something over here, Greek here. That word for birth in the Greek is the word Genesis. And this is Pretty awesome when you think about it. Just get the picture in the very choice of language here. God is taking us back to the very beginning when sinful humanity started and God is saying, I am bringing a new start. Jesus is a new Genesis. He is a new beginning. So to all who are guilty of iniquity, Jesus comes to give you a new identity. This is what his very name means. His name is Greek for Hebrew, Yeshua or Joshua, means the Lord saves, Yahweh saves. And just as God used Joshua in the Old Testament to lead his people into the promised land, so Jesus, the Lord saves, has come to lead people into eternal life. Which is why we read then after that in verse 18, for he will save his people from their sins. Please hear this, especially if you're exploring Christianity, even been opposed to Christianity. This is the reason Jesus came. He came to save you from your sin. Most everybody I talk to is hoping that when they stand before God one day, they'll go to heaven because their good deeds will outweigh their bad. They've done enough good to overcome their bad. But here's the problem with that whole way of thinking. One sin, one sin against an infinitely holy God is worthy of infinite separation from him, one sin. And no matter how much good you try to do, you can't erase that one sin. And you've committed so many more sins. Every one of us has. It's turned from God's ways to our own ways. But the beauty here is that we don't have to try to overcome our bad with our good. We are not saved from our sins because we are good enough. We are saved from our sins because Jesus is gracious enough. Because Jesus has come to pay the price for all of our sins. Not based on anything we can do to earn it. Jesus has died on a cross to cover over your sins. It's the greatest news in the world. Today, you can be forgiven of all your sins before a holy God, not because you do enough good things, but because you trust in his grace. How can you be saved from your sin? Simply by trusting in Jesus as your savior and to all who are guilty of iniquity, he will give you a new identity. And not just that, like think about all the shame associated with some of these stories of sin, incest, adultery, Rahab, a prostitute, even Ruth, a Moabite from a people known for their sexual immorality. But Jesus gives a fresh start to all who are stained by shame. Jesus gives you new dignity, new dignity. Like, let's be honest, this is one crooked family tree. And you might even ask, like, Why are the names of such shameful sinners included here in this line that leads to Jesus? And the answer is, for the same reason your name is included in the line that leads from Jesus. Totally by the grace of God. Because God sent his son to save the undeserving. Because God sent his son to save the unlikely. Just think about who's writing this. Matthew, the tax collector, this is a man who made his living ripping off the Jewish people. You get to Matthew chapter 9, and the only people Matthew knows to invite to his house for a party are moral reprobates. Matthew knows he's the least likely person to be writing this gospel, and that's what makes it the gospel, right? It's what makes it good news, that God saves us, not based upon our vain efforts at goodness, but based upon his supernatural gift of grace. Like hear that good news, like to every single person within the sound of my voice in Jesus, you can have a new start. A totally new start. Sins totally wiped away. New identity, new dignity. And then you're going the fourth way here. So many of these stories, apart from Jesus, they're so disheartening, right? Like, what if this is the end? All these stories of sin and suffering and shame. Like, what if that's all? How depressing would that be? But don't miss the picture, because these stories are not the end. To all who have lost heart, Jesus gives fresh hope. Fresh hope. Let me ask you a question. Do you ever look at the circumstances around you and think, I just don't see any hope of coming out from this. Maybe maybe you've sinned in such a way that you so wish you could take back, but you can't. And you think that sin is going to define me for the rest of my life. If you have ever thought that, if you are thinking that right now, if there's something that comes to your mind like, yeah, that's, that's gonna define me, please hear this. Jesus gives you fresh hope because Jesus ensures that sin will not define your life. Amen. That no sin will define your life if you are in Jesus. You read the stories of the gospel over the next couple of weeks, you'll see story after story of people who have sinned deeply. But when they encounter Jesus, everything changes. All the way to the cross where a thief is dying next to him, ask for forgiveness and Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus ensures sin will not define your life. That's good news. And then for those who suffer in this way or that way, maybe as a result of sin, or maybe not. Maybe just because we live in a fallen world and suffering is a reality. When your son is riding his bike, and in an instant everything changes. And of course you lose a heart, like this is your son. But to all who've lost heart, Jesus gives fresh hope because Jesus ensures that suffering will not be the end of your story. And mark it down, suffering was not the end of Jake Castle's story because Jake had trusted in Jesus, the one who had saved him from his sins and had come to conquer death itself. With Jesus, suffering will never be the end of your story. With Jesus, even earthly tragedy turns into eternal triumph. Jesus changes everything. He changes everything. Praise Jesus, he changes everything. Which leads right to number five. Jesus is the one whose presence will never leave you alone. So Matthew writes in verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That prophecy was given 700 years before Matthew chapter 1. Jesus is God with us. It's the astounding truth of Christianity. It seems to so many incomprehensible, but to those who believe it is irresistible. I always think about sitting across that table from a group of men I was talking with in the Middle East who told me God is too great, he's too glorious to debase himself by becoming a man like us. I so said, let me ask you a question. My nice story, in my life, I once met a woman and my heart fell in love with her. And when it came time for me to tell her that I loved her, do you think I got one somebody else to go and tell her that for me? Or do you think I went and told her that? I laughed and said, of course you went. I said, why is that? I said, well, because in matters of love, one must go himself, not send somebody else. And I said, that's the point. Our God is so great, so glorious, that he has not just sent this prophet or that person, this messenger or that message. God has come himself to us. Because in matters of love, one goes himself. Just think of it. The God who spoke the world into being who rules and reigns over all creation. Every star in the sky, he knows its name. Every ocean wave stops where it does because he tells it to The God around whom multitudes and myriads of angels worship and sing and praise Him continually day and night. The God whose glory is beyond our imagination, whose holiness is beyond our comprehension. This God is with you. Jesus is the constant companion your soul craves. No matter what happens to you, no matter what happens around you, no matter what you go through, to all who trust in Jesus, you are never alone in this world. You ever feel lonely? You ever feel like others don't understand what you're walking through, what you're experiencing? You ever been in a crowd full of people, maybe even right now, and you feel alone? Know this. Jesus has come so that you might never be alone. Amen. He will never, ever leave you alone. And he's the one whose guidance will never lead you astray. So we read Matthew chapter two, this quote in the middle of it from Micah chapter five, verse two, this promise of a coming Messiah. Wish we had time, we kind of do some comparison between the two, but I'll just go ahead and tell you at the very end when it says, For From you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. That picture of a shepherd is actually not in Micah chapter 5, 2. It actually goes back to 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 2, where God anointed David as king over Israel and said, you're not just to lead my people, you are to shepherd my people. You don't just rule over them. Like a shepherd with his sheep, you care for them. You protect them. You provide for them. And this is the picture. Jesus has come not just to reign over us as Lord, yes, that, and we are glad about that, but to serve us as shepherd. Do you ever wonder which direction to take in this life? Do you ever wonder which decision to make in this life? Jesus is the wise shepherd your soul needs. The one who rules over you lays down his life as the good shepherd to lead you. You are never without the guidance of the good shepherd. And Jesus is the one whose word will never let you down. So the Old Testament quotations just keep coming. And Matthew chapter two, verse 14, after Joseph and Mary flee to Egypt and come back, that's not by accident. Matthew says this was fulfilled what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So just like God had brought deliverance from Egypt in the Old Testament, Jesus is coming out of Egypt to bring deliverance in the New Testament. And then you get down to Jeremiah chapter 30, or Matthew chapter 2, verse 17 and 18. Matthew quotes from Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. As families are weeping because babies are dying in Bethlehem. Matthew takes us back to Jeremiah 31 where families were weeping as they were being scattered in the the deportation of Babylon. Families being ripped apart from each other. And in Jeremiah 31, God promises that just just as I brought hope in Jeremiah 31, I said, you'll have a future. This will not be the end of your story. So I'm promising you here that this weeping that you're experiencing will not be the end of the story. The whole point is, God is always faithful to his word. Jesus is the faithful deliverer your soul desires so that when you walk through suffering, when you walk through trial, you don't have to wonder if God's word is going to prove true. God's word will prove true every single time. Jesus is a picture of that, all these promises, that God has made over hundreds of years are coming to fulfillment here. Bible talks about all of God's promises are yes in Jesus. He is the picture of God's faithfulness. I I was saying to our middle schoolers yesterday, said, I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands, but I'm guessing that across this room, there's some, maybe many of you who have had people you trusted in your life have let you down, people who have loved you for a little while and then left you. And I just looked in the eyes of every one of those sixth, seventh, eighth graders and I said, know this, when you put your trust in Jesus, his word will never let you down. His love will never let you down. Not saying everything will be easy. We've obviously talked about that today, but know this, his word will never let you down. He will always prove himself faithful to you. Amen. Which all leads to number eight here. So this is where everything comes to a head. Jesus is all these things we've just talked about, but if I was gonna summarize it, number eight, Jesus is the one whose love is worthy of of your life and in the rest of the book of Matthew this is the question we see over and over and over again like who is going to believe that Jesus is worthy of their life and what we will see is religious leaders reject him Roman rulers reject him but then a small band of disciples believes that he's worthy of their life. And Jesus changes their lives. And through them, quite literally, changes the world. So that then leads to the question I wanna ask every single one of us today. All across this room, right where you're sitting and other campuses, Do you believe that Jesus is the one whose love is worthy of your entire life? And I ask that question that way because there's something we need to realize. Followers of Jesus are not people for whom Jesus is part of their lives. This is really important. Followers of Jesus are not people who kind of do what they want with their lives and then tack on Jesus on Sundays. That's not following Jesus. That's patronizing Jesus. It's the curse of nominal Christianity. People who claim the name of Jesus but have no real love for him, desire to follow him as their life. Followers of Jesus are not people for whom Jesus is part of their life. Followers of Jesus are people for whom Jesus is their life. And I have good news for every single one of us. Like new eternal life is possible for every single one of us right now. In Jesus, and when you put your trust in Jesus, then you can be sure that life is yours forever. No matter what unexpected thing happens to you this week, you can be sure that nothing in this world can take away the life of Jesus from you. So... Will you bow your heads with me? Like, I just want to call everybody not to be distracted in any way here, other campuses, just to be able to focus. So if you bow your heads, close your eyes, I just wanna ask you that question. Wish I could ask it just like sitting in front of every single person, just from youngest to the oldest, just all kinds of different backgrounds, here for all kinds of different reasons, just ask you the question, do you believe Jesus is the one whose love is worthy of your life? And I know that in the number of people who are gathered here, some came in here today and the answer to that question has not been yes. Like some, like maybe yes, your heart just raises up and say, yes, I believe that. I've believed that for however long. But others, like that's not been clear. And today I wanna invite you to make that clear. I wanna give you an opportunity right now just to pray to God and to say, I want Jesus to be my life. I just wanna invite you all across this room and other campuses right now, if that's you, just to pray right now and say in your heart, God, I want Jesus to save me from my sins. I want Jesus to be Lord of my life. I want Jesus to be my life. I wanna know this kind of guidance. I wanna know this kind of companionship. I wanna know this kind of love. I don't want sin to define my life. I don't want suffering to be the end of my story. Oh, I urge you, Trust in Jesus as your life today. Like you are not guaranteed tomorrow. Trust in Jesus as your life today. I invite you to do that right now, just to say that to God. Today, I wanna trust in Jesus as my life. And I wanna give you an opportunity, like all across this room and other campuses with our heads bowed and eyes closed, just between you and God, if today, You are saying, I wanna trust in Jesus as my life. Like you came in here today and you were not trusting in Jesus as your life. But today, right now, you are saying that before God. I just wanna ask you, just before God, just to raise your hand right where you are. And just to say, yeah, today, here at other campuses, praise God. Just raise your hand before God as you're saying, today I'm trusting in your love. I want your love to define my life, your hope to define my future, not my sin, not my shame, not suffering. God, I praise you for all these hands, what they represent in hearts. Jesus, I praise you for new starts. I praise you for giving new starts today. Praise you for giving fresh hope today. Jesus, you, you change everything. We need you. We desire you, and we praise you. We praise you for coming to save us from our sins. We praise you for coming to give us new life so we receive it all across this room, some for the first time receiving new life today. And for all, whether for the first time today or some who 67 years ago started this journey of life with you. God, we we pray. We pray that you would draw us into deeper and deeper and deeper experience, understanding of your love, the life you've called us to. God, we pray for help. We pray for help, especially in light of what's happened this week. God, God, we need your help. We need your grace. We need your mercy. When we don't have answers to all our questions, we need your promises that we know we can stand on. And you're a hope that you give us that suffering is not the end of the story. So we praise you. We praise you for uh, the life Jake Castle not had but has in you. And for the life we have in you, we celebrate you, Jesus. We praise you, Jesus. We live in you, Jesus. We say together today, to live is Christ and to die is gain. In the precious name of Jesus, who makes that possible, we pray. Amen.
0: Well, thanks for joining us today on Radical with David Platt. If you'd like to watch the video version of this sermon or download the video audio or even the weekly discussion questions, you can do all that at our website, Radical.net. There you can find more articles and other resources on similar topics, such as the person and work of Christ, the gospel, and redemptive history. I'm your host, Thomas Bowen, and until next time, join us there at Radical.net.